When AD&D 2nd Edition launched, the Assassin, the Barbarian, the Cavalier, and the Monk were removed from the game. The Dungeon Master's Guides mentioned that you didn't need these classes, as they could be emulated using existing character classes. By the end of AD&D 2nd Edition, Assassins, Barbarians, and Monks were all back in the game. In addition to that, the Wizard gained ten additional specializations. Man, that's a lot of specializations. What is there beyond, like, those eight classic ones? Anyways, we also got the Crusader, Psionist, Shaman, Gladiator, Ninjas, there's probably pirates in there somewhere too, but maybe not, Berserkers, and Runecasters. Shouldn't that have just been a magic user or wizard specialization? Anyways, that's a long way away from original D&D's magic users, clerics, and fighting men. There is so much bloat here, I can't even begin to talk about it. In fact, I need to go to the bathroom right now. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D is the adorable critter that followed us home. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And in 2021, I became, in charge of all of it, the head gnome. And I am Jared, the review gnome at Gnome Stew. I have been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I have got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. Today, after we look at the games we're running in the campaign journal, we'll be talking about character classes and if there's any room for new classes in D&D 5e. Then we'll have some recommendations of D&D-related content for you to check out in the downtime research segment. So, nothing too much new from me on the campaign front. This is being recorded pre-Origins, so I haven't run my game there yet. In fact, I was working on <laughs> prepping it just before we started recording. I've got some fancy maps printed out and all the minis picked out in a little box ready to go. All I have to do is put together my notes. Uh, I, I know what I'm doing. I just need to get the notes in order and put some final touches on the PCs they'll be playing because I've put together fifth level characters for them. I feel like I need to give them some magic items, one or two. So I need to figure out what I'm going to give them besides Hey, the fighter has a plus one weapon. Let's let's give them something fun. I did get to play in uh, my Knight's Dark Terror game uh, that my friend Tristan is running, and we fought a lot of goblins. <laughs> a lot of goblins. The entire session was pretty much defending the homestead against waves of goblins. Now... I'm not really a fan of old school aesthetics in games. Honestly, too much trauma from the <laughs> 80s and playing. So whenever people talk about old school style games, I just start twitching because, oh, I have somebody like, I don't know how I stayed a gamer based <laughs> on some of those games, but I will play them if my friend Tristan is running them because he is very good at balancing the danger and weight of the situation without doing it at the expense of the PCs. Um, instead of making it dangerous by making the PCs powerless, he lets us still be competent and feel like we can accomplish things in this setting, but instead he basically just plays up the atmosphere and the danger and plays the, the monsters smart. So this was a really good situation 
where it was dark and scary, even though it was, quote unquote, just goblins. Yeah. The barn was burning in the background, the weight of the night surrounding us with the drums in the forest and the goblins chanting and shouting at us from the trees (laughs) where we could barely see them. It's honestly half of my goals as a GM is to be like Tristan. So I don't know if he's ever going to listen to this and hear those compliments, but there you go. (laughs) Yeah, it seemed like um, in some older school aesthetics, the idea was here are some things that you probably won't like. And if you can't sit through them, maybe this isn't the game for you. And it was like, no, (laughs) I don't want to sit through those things. All right, so this time around, I'm going to talk about my monthly D&D game with my daughter and my daughter-in-law. Last time, they found a book that was going to lead them to the Sword of Kaz because they decided right off the bat that they were going to take a very vaguely worded uh, hook to start looking for the Eye of Vecna. <laughs> I'm not quite ready for them to find the Sword of Kaz at second level, Yeah, but that's okay because, yeah, we, we have some background stuff that I could throw in there. I suppose finding the Sword of Kaz is better than finding the Eye of Vecna at second level. It is, but just marginally. (laughs) Also, there's the idea that I want to make sure that when they go through whatever trials they have to to find the Sword of Kaz, it feels epic enough, and I'm not sure I can quite pull that off with them still being second level. (laughs) (laughs) Epic is a little hard in that first tier of play. It is a little bit, um, but they're definitely a little bit more uh, survivable now that they're at second level than they were <laughs> that first session when they opened a door and it killed one of them. So uh, a messenger arrived from the Druid Circle. One of the PCs is a Druid, so they're working for the Druid Circle. The Druid Circle is what's in charge of all of the little settlements in this area. And the messenger explains that they're looking for allies to help them out in this war between the dragon and her uh, hobgoblin mercenaries and the undead creature who is replacing parts of the forest with the Shadowfell. So the three groups of allies that I presented them with from this messenger is orcs, mountain dwarves, or Shadarkai elves. And the Shadarkai elves is because, you know, they live in that, that part of the forest that's been replaced with the Shadowfell. So I was waiting to see which one of these groups they wanted to go, you know, interact with. They talked about it for a while. And they decided that they were going to go for the uh, Shadarkai first, in part because, and I kind of like this, they were talking about like class features, and the Shadarkai, because they are still in a forest, they can't get lost because they have a ranger who has forest as their favorite terrain. So they figured, well, let's go after the Shadarkai first because at least we don't have to worry about getting lost. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, reasonable, reasonable choices. And this is something that I like about this game because there are, you know, like we talked about earlier about this, there are things that we take for granted because we've been playing this for so long, but just something like telling somebody you're not going to get lost in the forest as long as you have a general idea of where you're going is something that I, oh, that's important. Let's make sure that we follow up on that and take advantage of it. So it's kind of neat. It kind of makes the ranger feel important, even if she's not actively doing anything with that ability. I know I don't necessarily like that ability because it isn't active. It's something that is right. just on or off. But right now, because it's brand new to them, it is something that's kind of neat. You know, like, we can't get lost. This is awesome. Yeah. Let's follow, follow the ranger through the forest. <laughs> so they had the, the wizard's apprentice with them last time to lead them to the living dungeon that they went to. And they decided to adopt the uh, wizard's apprentice 
as their own. So <laughs> before they left the wizard's tower, they convinced the wizard to let them have the uh, the apprentice to go with them. And on top of that, the centaur druid that brought them the message, the centaur was originally going to say, I can go talk to one of these other groups while you recruit the uh, Shadar Kai. And they were like, no, you're coming with us. We're not splitting the party. <laughs> <laughs> And basically what I decided with both the Wizard's Apprentice and the Centaur is I don't even roll their initiative. I just, after everyone else is gone, they have the last count in the initiative and they both just cast cantrips. That way they're doing something and it might be helpful, but it's not going to overshadow what the PCs are doing. They had a few random encounters as they're traveling through the forest, but my favorite one, and I set this up on purpose, I know, I knew what heartstrings to play on. But they had a random encounter where an Almirage jumps into, into the uh, camp. And if you haven't heard of this before, an Almirage is a bunny with a unicorn horn. It's adorable. <laughs> and the entire point of an Almirage is just that it's, it's a bunny. It's overly brave for its size because it's a bunny with a horn. Like, it does a decent amount of damage, but it is still a bunny with three hit points. <laughs> <laughs> So it bounces into their camp and an Alborer comes charging out of the forest, hunting the Almirage. And the Almirage is like standing its ground, ready to try and uh, spear this giant Alborer that comes thundering into, uh, into their, their camp. Immediately, you know, the Druid was like, I I'm going to adopt that Almirage. <laughs> that is my bunny now. <laughs> I think I, I mentioned when you showed me the picture of the Almirage, I'm like, your players are going to try and adopt that. I was not shocked by this. Um, <laughs> what was really interesting, though, is they decided, you know, I basically told them, if you let the Albert eat the Almirage, it's going to leave all of you alone. And they're like, no, <laughs> we're not doing that. And so they were trying to figure out, like, we don't want to fight the Albert necessarily. Can we get it to go away otherwise? So they remembered from last session that they got the scorpion on a stick from the kobold. One of my players told me that I know owls in certain parts of the country will eat scorpions. So I am going to throw this big scorpion in front of it and see if it wants to eat it. So the owlbear, you know, we did the an animal handling check and they kind of like threw it far enough away that it was a, a tempting target for the owlbear. Albert goes after the scorpion. I didn't even bother with whether the scorpion stung it or not. I just had the big old owlbear pounce on the scorpion and like chomp it down. Definitely playing up the weird like owl head movements and everything from, you know, seeing an owl head on top of a bear. But after it eats the scorpion, my daughter, playing a monk, decides she wants the owlbear to be friendly. So she is going to go up to the owlbear and try and calm it with interpretive dance. <laughs> Unfortunately, she did not roll very well to calm the owlbear down. So the owlbear just sees this human run in front of it and start flailing around. Does the group understand that this isn't Pokemon and you're not supposed to catch them all? <laughs> they might now, because after that happened, you know, I was like, well, your handle animal check has not gone well here. We are going to roll for initiative. The owlbear went before the monk and got a critical hit oh. with its beak. <laughs> so the monk, in one shot, like, the beak just comes down, flips her around, drops her on the ground. She's at zero hit points. <laughs> Thankfully, because the, the paladin is 
worried about the monk wandering off and doing mischievous things because she often does. The paladin, every scene, attempts to tie a rope to the monk's waist when she is not paying attention. And we had already determined that she had the rope tied around the monk's waist. So on the paladin's turn, the paladin, or no, the druid came up and grabbed the rope and yanked her back to the rest of the party so that she wasn't right next to the owlbear anymore. <laughs> they did manage to um, to defeat the owlbear, and they did keep the, the almirage. And I told them, like, I was like, this thing does have a sharp horn that can do a lot of damage, but it also has three hit points, so you probably don't want to try and teach it to fight. The, the druid is like, no, I don't want it to fight. I just want this bunny with a horn on it. <laughs> Uh, so they finally make it to the Shadowfell, and I had a Shadow Demon waiting for them. This is one of those things where I, w I wanted to make sure I didn't overwhelm them, because it is a party of four second-level characters, and a Shadow Demon is CR4. So it more or less should be doable. Um, Shadow Demons don't have really nasty abilities unless they can hide. If they are, if they hit you while they're hidden, they do double damage with their uh, with their claws, and that could definitely get nasty. But the neat thing was, right off the bat, the druid cast fairy fire on the shadow demon, which I thought was great. You know, that was somebody picking up on tactics before. You know, I even thought like, no, this thing is it's a shadow creature. I'm not going to let it have the ability to hide before I even hinted that it you know that it did more damage when it could hide. So they did that right off the bat. The other thing is shadow demons are vulnerable to radiant damage. Our paladin has not gotten a chance to smite yet. She hit the shadow demon and she did a smite and she got to roll 48 extra damage with that radiant damage and she was so happy with all of that extra damage that she was doing when she hit the when she hit the uh the shadow demon. So I that fight went really well, and they were all excited because it didn't just feel like they rolled well, so they won. They felt like they did something tactically well because the paladin used radiant damage and the druid used, you know, fairy fire so it couldn't hide. And even though, you know, a paladin using smite seems like a fairly standard tactic, this is brand new to them. So, I mean, that felt very rewarding to them that they had an ability that not just made them better, but especially made them better you know like this is really good to use this thing not just good yeah so they defeat the shadow demon and then they run up against the shader kai captain and i described the shader kai captain as being this tall broad-shouldered woman that's very you know very imposing and first off the girls in the group start adding descriptions to her on top of my description <laughs> So by the time we were finished with this, they had made her into not only this, you know, big intimidating warrior, but she was also like this goddess level <laughs> six and a half foot tall woman. <laughs> and the monk and the paladin start fighting over who gets to flirt with the Shader Kai captain. <laughs> um, they made a group check just to win over this captain. Um, the captain is, trusts them now, you know, understands that, you know, you don't like these these undead. You you follow the Raven Queen and she doesn't like undead. These undead are, you know, in, you know, invading our area. We want to talk about, you know, working together for this. And she's like, yes, I will take you to my leader and we will go over, you know, plans for potentially helping you out. And that's where we left off that session. 
Except that the monk and the paladin are now actively fighting over who gets to flirt with this uh, Shade Archai captain. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, if you follow wrestling, by the time we were, the, the group was done adding descriptions to this person, I realized that we had basically made a Shade Archai version of Taya Valkyrie from AEW Wrestling. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I'm excited to hear about what happens next for this group. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. So today we're going to talk about character classes and if D&D 5th Edition has room for any more classes. Depending upon where you started playing, the idea of what constitutes core classes has changed with each edition. For the most part, in previous editions, additional classes were continually added with each wave of new content. But 5e has stuck very close to what it has established as the 12 core classes and instead focused on adding subclasses. So we want to talk about if and when D&D 5e might have room to grow in regard to classes. Now, first, let's take a moment and define what the core classes are. <laughs> Barbarian, Bard, Cleric, Druid, Fighter, Monk, Paladin, Ranger, Rogue, Sorcerer, Warlock, and Wizard. In the nine years of 5th edition, the only full class they have added was the Artificer, and that wasn't added until Eberron was released, and they kind of had to. Yeah. Because they couldn't fit an artificer into any of the existing classes mm -hmm. as a subclass. It is interesting though, that once they did open up artificer, there is definitely room in the narrative in some settings for an artificer, even outside of Eberron. Like for example, in Dragonlance, it makes perfect sense to have gnomes that are artificers because mm -hmm. they're tinkers. Yep. So do subclasses make new classes less necessary? I think to some extent, yes. Because there are concepts in earlier editions of D&D that would have been handled by doing a whole new class that now it is just like, let's add some flavor to this class. Like, we're going to specialize this, this, uh, this class into a certain area. And there wasn't a good way to do that when everything, you know, it was just a class. Like, in third edition D&D... The fighter was the fighter. There was no like specialization as to what kind of fighter you are other than the feats that you could take and things like that. But the, right. the fighter itself as a class, there wasn't like a fighter and then you could do this thing to further make it a better archer fighter or a better melee fighter. Those were all things that you did through feats or through prestige classes. Prestige classes. Yeah, I really feel like subclasses in fifth edition are a much more streamlined and efficient way of doing prestige classes. They're, they're kind of a reimagining of the, the prestige classes mm -hmm. because the prestige class was you had to do X amount in this class or that class, reach certain achievements, and then you could basically switch over to leveling in a prestige class, which was those previous things you had been doing, but ramped up to a higher, more epic level with those characters. And I feel like subclasses take some of those concepts and basically bring them down so that the character can be that more through their entire journey mm -hmm. instead of just, you know, like, okay, I finally reached 10th level. Yeah. I have 
this many levels of rogue, this many levels of wizard, and now I can finally be an arcane trickster. Exactly. No, you just, that's what your rogue is when you, when you get to third level. That's actually a really good example because arcane trickster was a prestige class and it is now a subclass. Another example of that is, um, the, uh, draconic sorcerer, the dragon disciple was basically a prestige class that was very well suited for a sorcerer to eventually take, but it wasn't something they were going to pick up at first level. So yeah, I think it is kind of a mainstreamed version of prestige classes, but also moving a little away from that idea that some prestige classes you have to pick up four different sets of skills, some of which you will never use again in the future in order to pick up this prestige class. (laughs) And I do think in general, I mean, there are some subclasses which are better than others, but for the most part, by going down the subclass path, they have kept things more balanced. Mm -hmm. Because I remember some games in third edition where you would have somebody as a vanilla version of a class Mm -hmm. and have them in the same party with somebody who either had one of these unique classes that was a combination of things or was had already reached a prestige class and they just left the vanilla character kind of in the dust. Even when the vanilla characters were as effective or maybe even a little more effective, when they couldn't do a flashy thing like the prestige class gave them the ability to do, they just didn't seem to shine as much. Like, I just yeah. do my job really well. Well, I do my job really well, but glow when I do it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so... Are there any classes from older editions that you miss? And yes, Pathfinder is allowed to be discussed here. Oh, definitely. I miss the Warlord. The Warlord, I think, it was actually a concept that came about in the third edition miniatures handbook, but it was called the Marshal then. But, you know, I really like the idea that you have someone that is a Marshal character that isn't necessarily the best one-on-one fighter, although they're a decent one-on-one fighter, but their job is actually to make everyone else work better as a team. Yeah. I like that concept. People don't always pull it off well, but I like that concept. I loved the Avenger in 4th edition. The Avenger, if no one played 4th edition, was... You're a wizard for God. You were an assassin for God. (laughs) Oh, that's right. Yeah, the Avenger was the uh, stealthy assassin-type character that was basically... If the paladin is a divine fighter, the, you know, the Avenger was basically the divine assassin. What am I thinking of then? What was the... the... You were thinking of the Invoker. The Invoker, that's it. <laughs> that was a divine class that that, um, that specialized in blowing things up. <laughs> I played an Invoker. She was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I really like that Avenger concept because I can't... I like the idea that some fates are going to have a stand-up person that defends things and smites them. And some faiths are going to have someone that is sneaky and walks up behind someone and smites them quietly. <laughs> <laughs> the Archivist was a third edition class that I really loved. And what the Arch- Archivist was, was it was a divine caster that had a prayer book where they would study rituals from across the past. And basically it was a divine version of a wizard. They used intelligence as their casting stat. They couldn't cast every cleric spell. They had to actually learn them because they learned through going through like religious history what spells they could cast. And I kind of like that feeling for a class. I loved the binder. Binder kind of got rolled into uh, a little bit into the warlock because binder, you would 
have symbols that would let you take on aspects of beings that have almost died away and disappeared from reality because they want to continue to exist. They let you borrow some of their aspect and you get their powers. And it was kind of the prototypical version of um, having a patron. Mm-hmm. True namers, I love the concept of, but when they showed up in third edition, they didn't work. I would not actually advocate anyone, even if you're a fan of third edition, using a true namer because it didn't work. <laughs> but I love the concept of magic that is not just, you know, manipulating energy, but actually being able to manipulate the essence of a thing because you understand its true name. That's like a really neat trope. You know, Le Guin, that, you know, storytelling. I really like that. This kind of dovetails with the Avenger, but I do love the Inquisitor from Pathfinder because the Inquisitor was an investigator that was like a half-caster divine. And I really liked that that idea, too, because they were basically, you know, like if the church needs something investigated or, you know, rooted out, they send out Inquisitors. And it wasn't quite the same thing as like the divine assassin, but it is along that similar lines of, you are sneaky and ro- and skill-based, but you are also a divine caster. I think a lot about Pathfinder because I ran an Eberron campaign using Pathfinder, and half of the party were basically very specific Pathfinder classes. The mm-hmm. Witch, the Oracle, and the Gunslinger. I also mm-hmm. had a recurring bad guy who was a Magus, and... Well, I could probably reskin the Magus as a blade singer. It's still not quite right, and I mm-hmm. have not found any subclasses that I feel would work for the witch, the oracle, or even the gunslinger. And there have been several attempts mm-hmm. at creating a gunslinger that don't really like I don't I don't want the over the top pathfinder nature to some of these classes but there's still mm-hmm. a feeling that yeah. is missing for i think those three classes that i haven't found in fifth edition yet and i i think story-wise there are some there is some overlap between the warlock and the witch but the way pathfinder executed the witch doesn't feel the same as the no warlock. no we, we we seriously looked at trying to convert all of the characters from Pathfinder mm-hmm. to 5th edition, and everyone was kind of like, eh, it's not quite the same. Yeah. Uh, and I just miss, I miss those classes. At least for me, when I think of a witch class, I think of something that isn't so much like I'm getting forbidden power from this patron, and more like, I study magic and I don't worship a thing, but I'm also very in tune with nature as well as being able to do arcane stuff. And yeah, other than just, you know, making a multi-class, you know, wizard druid, there isn't like a good feel for that in fifth edition. Yeah. And, and like the key to the witch in Pathfinder were the hexes. Mm -hmm. Like, okay. So warlocks have their invocations, but they're not quite the same. And just, Yeah. I haven't found a way to make that one work. Yep, I definitely agree. So speaking of what is missing, what is the conceptual space where there is still openings for designing new classes in 5th edition? So this was a thing I was kind of like going back over and reading what other editions have said about, you know, making new classes. And this is our thought on making new classes. And one of the things that I thought was funny is, in second edition, when they paired back some of the classes from first edition, 
they go into this whole thing about how, you know, you shouldn't just make new classes because sometimes it's just a matter of reconceptualizing something like a barbarian is just a fighter that, you know, knows more about nature and comes from certain areas. And then by the end of second edition, they added like a crap ton of <laughs> new classes that were definitely not just re-envisioning things. I do think that for fifth edition, if something's going to be a class, I think what's really important is you need to have a clear vision of can this have subclasses that give you distinct feelings of yes. play? Because if it's going to be something where it, it seems like a thing in fantasy, but you can't think of more than one way that you could approach it. It's probably a subclass of another class, not a class on its own. Yeah. Um, beyond that, it's hard for me to say what should and shouldn't be turned into a class. Mm -hmm. Like I, I think some of these things that I am missing from those classes in, in Pathfinder could be created as subclasses. The mm -hmm. only one that I probably wouldn't really be able to do as a subclass is the witch, because it's not an arcane caster. It's not a divine caster. It's its own weird thing in between. And you could mm -hmm. probably give it some subclasses to take it in different directions, but it would probably be a oh, little I on the weaker side, like the, the art. Not that the artificer is weaker, but you know what I mean. Mm hmm. The, the Artificer is interesting because the Artificer gets a whole lot of what it does from its subclass. Like the core Artificer is just kind of you can do these things, but a whole lot of how it does the things like whether it's going to feel like an alchemist or someone that makes Iron Man armor for themselves or, you know, something like that. Those are really different feels yeah. that it gets from its subclasses. I actually have to confess that when when I first started playing fifth edition, I was a little confused about the concept of the subclass, and I'm like, do I have to take a subclass? Can I just be a rogue? <laughs> Not realizing that it was something that was baked into the game from the beginning. I do think there has been a little bit of a drift, though, from the way the very early subclasses worked to the ones that we see like in Xanathar's and Tasha's mm -hmm. and from third parties, because I think... In those early ones, there are definitely some classes where it's not so much that a subclass has a different story. It is just mechanically letting you specialize in a thing. Like if you look at the the rogue subclasses in the 2014 Player's Handbook, Assassin and Thief don't... Assassin feels like it has a story, but it doesn't. Really, the difference between those two subclasses is, do you want to use your skills more or do you want to be better in combat? Yeah. Assassin is not better in combat, but it, th that's the reason... That <laughs> that it's there it doesn't succeed really well but i actually am not a big fan of the sub the rogue subclasses mm -hmm. in the player's handbook they're not great in that one the arcane trickster is great yeah that's, that's probably the best one but there. thief is boring mm -hmm. assassin is meh you don't start getting some interesting stuff until you start getting into Xanathar's and Tasha's and see some of the rogue, the subclasses in there. Absolutely love the Phantom Rogue. It is so neat and creepy. Yes. If you want to be an assassin with some personality, be a phantom. <laughs> that is actually the type of rogue I made for the D&D game I will be running at Origins. <laughs> I messaged the kid's mom and it's like, would he be interested in playing a creepy rogue that has an uh, like a connection to the undead? You know, and she's like, responded, quote, sounds cool. 
<laughs> but yeah, I really do think like, I don't think story was as big a deal, you know, in 2014 design. Even, I mean, if you, even if you look at it, like with the wizard, most of the subclasses for the wizards is, is you are specialized in the school of magic. Yeah. That's not really a story. It's just you tend towards this type of magic. And the later designs really are telling a lot more of a story. Yeah. You know, when you get to the, the Path of the Beast Barbarian, like, you let an animal spirit inhabit you and you can, like, grow teeth or a tail. Like, that is much more of a story than just, you know, your rage harder. There are some exceptions. Uh, with Sorcerer, there's a pretty big difference between Draconic Sorcerer and Wild Magic Sorcerer. I think almost... Whether they intended it or not, Warlock and Sorcerer had to have more story involved with their subclasses. Yeah. You can't say that someone is making a deal for their soul to get, you know, Infernal Power or make some weird bargain to get Fey Powers and not have that feel differently than just you're specializing in this type of spell over this one. So I'm going to have to ask you this one, Jared, because this is not an area of expertise for me. But what third party classes already exist out there? OK, well, first off, I am not going to go down the whole list of campaign settings that have completely customized ones. The Lord of the Rings RPG has customized classes. You might be able to use them outside of that setting, but they're really designed to work in that setting. Ruins of Symbarum is another example of that. The, even the Doctor Who, who um, 5e SRD version has classes that you could pull out and play in a regular D&D game, but they're not really designed for that. So I'm going to skip <laughs> over all of that stuff and just look at the things that are really meant to be plug and play into a standard D&D campaign. And you do have a gunslinger class in Seas of Vidari. One of the things that they did, you know, since we're talking about, you know, subclasses being a lot of the area, you know, where the design space happens, gunslinger does kind of do the same thing that rogues and fighters do where there is a version of the gunslinger that is like a half caster and there is a version of the gunslinger that is like specialized in pistols there's one that specializes in rifles my favorite one is the musketeer because that is the one that actually gets some investigatory and um interpersonal interactions because you're basically working on behalf of someone as an agent and i also love three musketeers so i really love that subclass of it i don't think the seas of adari was out when my group was investigating transferring our characters from Pathfinder to 5th edition. So we didn't have that one to look at. That's a good one to look at for that, because I really do like that gunslinger. Uh, Schwab Entertainment did their version of a warlord and a warden. I like both of these. The subclasses for the, for the warlord are basically different, like whether or not you are a, a kind of play it safe sort of you know, leader or whether you like to, you know, take wild, you know, wild chances and stuff like that. That's kind of where the subclasses come in for that version of the Warlord. And the Warden, if you have never played 4th Edition, this is another class that I kind of liked. I don't necessarily know that it would have been on my top list of this must get converted. But the best way I can explain the Warden is it's kind of like a primal version of a Paladin. You're, you know, you are a defensive warrior, but you have druidic based you know abilities to do things and the way they design this in this subclass is it's basically where the paladin gets to do smiting and stuff like that the warden can do the opposite where it makes it harder for people to hit people because they expend resources around them or it can make things difficult terrain or things like that part of why i wanted to bring up the schwalb entertainment thing is because robert schwalb 
was actually one of the people that helped design a lot of fifth edition D&D. So those are probably, you know, pretty good things to look at there. Kobold Press has a Thaumaturge and a Witch coming out in the new version of the um, Deep Magic source books that they just funded not too long ago. And they're both supposed to be compatible with 5th edition and with Tales of the Valiant. The Thaumaturge is basically what I was talking about with the Archivist. It is an intelligence-based divine caster. And the Witch, we don't know what the Witch looks like yet. I'm curious. I, I am definitely curious, but I will plug this from friend of the show. It's they have not made it available yet, but Brandon Stoddard helped design the witch class. If you listen to the um, oh, I cannot remember the, the world's beyond number podcast, but I can't remember the name of the, the campaign with, you know, Brendan Lee Mulligan and Bree Iyengar and Eric Ishii. The witch class that Eric Ishii is playing in that podcast was partially designed by Brandis Stoddard. Ooh. If you listen to that podcast, you can kind of hear some of what it does. They are at some point going to release that as a separate product, and I'm really interested to see what that witch looks like because that is very much like we were just talking about where it is almost a primal class. They do get nature magic. They can do some healing, but they also, like, there is a sort of, like, hex ability that they get where, like, if you screw over a witch, you are much more screwed over than if you uh, screw over somebody else. <laughs> um, so what you say to a witch is actually kind of important gameplay-wise because, you know, if you break a promise, that you're actually more susceptible to their spells and things like that, which is kind of a neat mechanic to play with there. MCDM has also done the Beastmaster and the Eelrigger. These are both interesting, but they both also overlap some other things because the Beastmaster is expressly built to have a companion where they get powers from that companion and also that companion gets an ability where you can trigger things. Eileen's companion gets a little bit of these abilities because, you know, that's where that companion comes from. But there's a difference between how it works if you are a Beastmaster versus if you just have a companion where you're tracking their fury and spending those points and everything. But the Beastmaster does kind of feel like it plays a lot in the Ranger space. Mm -hmm but it is very devoted to just being like what people kind of want the Beastmaster Ranger to be. And unfortunately, the Beastmaster Ranger isn't really what people wanted. I mean, the 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 changes in Tasha's make it a little more palatable, but it's still not exactly what I think people really wanted. And the main issue I would say I had with MCDM's Beastmaster is not that it is a bad class, it's that conceptually it's not a great one for having subclasses yeah um and then the Ilrigger is interesting because it's basically a knight devoted to hell which feels very much like it's playing in the same space as paladin and it kind of is but it has some unique mechanics there i definitely feel like some of these that i've talked about i wouldn't have a problem in a campaign but i also don't necessarily think they are super compelling that you know it's a missed opportunity to add them I think the Gunslinger is possibly, the Warlord is possibly, maybe the Thaumaturge and the Witch. I don't think like the Beastmaster and the Illrigger are definitely, and I don't think the Warden is. Some of these, it sounds like, well, you could have just made some subclasses. For example, I mean, the Oath of Age Ancients Paladin is sort of doing the same thing as the Warden, but not quite as, you know, it doesn't feel quite as druidy, but it is a little bit more nature-based. Yeah. So yeah, there is, you know... And obviously, I think a lot of people have already, you know, kind of pointed this out. The 
the Battlemaster fighter has warlord elements to yes. it. But it's not quite as robust as the warlord was if you remember playing a warlord from fourth edition. I was thinking about that when we were talking about the warlord and like I'm like there's a little bit of it there in the battlemaster but not enough to really scratch that itch. Do you think that any of these classes subclasses would be concepts that wizards would be likely to make in any official capacity? I'm really interested to see if Gunslinger seems to be something that is divisive because a lot of people like it. A lot of people remember it from Pathfinder. A lot of people played it in Pathfinder. A lot of people know it from Critical Role because Callison's character started off as a Pathfinder Gunslinger and then Matt made it into a fighter subclass for Critical Role. So I think Gunslinger is always in people's minds, but also there are a lot of people that are like, no, I don't want guns in my D&D setting. Which is a fair enough concern. Mm -hmm. Like, I totally get not wanting it, but I also want the Gunslinger to be available for those. Like, I miss having a Gunslinger in Eberron. Oh, yeah. You know, part of why it's in Seas of Vidari is because that is a setting about sailing and pirates and definitely... You know, you definitely can get that feeling of a pirate whipping out a pistol and, you know, being able to do some tricks with it before they close and start dueling someone or that idea that you have a cutlass in one hand and a pistol in the other. You know, I think whether Wizards adopts that or not is going to be I almost feel like that's going to be like the artificer. Like if they have a setting where it makes a lot of sense, they might do something like that. And then maybe it ends up, you know, backfilling into the rest of D&D from that setting. I would love to see them provide some subclasses based on settings. Oh, yeah. Maybe not create a whole gunslinger class, but create a robust fighter subclass. Mm -hmm. Like you can sort of kind of try and do it with the artificer, but it doesn't really work that well. Mm -hmm. Give us some subclasses that are unique to these settings. And honestly, when, when we talk about what wizards could do that they haven't already done i actually think the invoker is not a bad idea for them to revisit and the reason i say that is clerics have a very specific thing their subclasses do some classes have more open-ended subclasses like you know wizards or like wizards fighters and um rogues can become half casters that's like way wide open compared to what some other subclasses do but every cleric subclass has to give you a divine, you know, a divine uh, uh, channel divinity option. They have to give you this thing at eighth level that either boosts your cantrips or your, your abilities. You know, your they very much structured it to where every domain does something very similar at those levels that is just flavored towards that domain. So I think having another divine class where you could have more diversity of what am I doing? as a servant of this god that is more specialized and isn't just this domain but tweaked for this flavor, I think there's a lot of room for that. Now, whether they can explain it conceptually well enough that people get the difference, I don't know, because I personally think there's a huge difference between clerics and warlocks, but I've heard people that don't get the point that, well, you're getting power from somebody else. Like, yes, but in one case, you actually worship them. The other case, you're making deals with them. And there are still people that are like, well, I don't still, still don't see a difference. So, yeah, you do still have you would have to invest in that story to explain, like, how is an invoker 
a different kind of priest than a cleric. Right. I would say that the Divine Soul Sorcerer is a little bit like an invoker. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they can still drop the big booms on everything, but mm-hmm. they still have that connection to some some degree of divinity. That's also one of your backdoor, like, if you want to play an arcane character that still manages to, you know, pull out some healing. Yes. You know, that is, that's kind of the backdoor with that ability there, too. Which is one of the other characters I made for <laughs> the upcoming D&D game, because I was told... The kid wanted to play a wizard and then found out, no, they wanted to play a cleric, but we already had somebody else playing a cleric. So I offered the Divine Soul Sorcerer as an alternative. (laughs) You get fireball and healing. (laughs) Make sure you don't heal too much because then you can't blow things up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So I am curious. um, Do you think... 5e needs a dedicated scion class because that on one hand i can see that being something that does have its own design space but much like the gunslinger that is a very divisive thing to bring up sometimes i actually kind of like how they handled psionics already in the game like having some subclasses Mm -hmm. that are focused on psionics your your soul knife your psi warrior um, I can't remember the name. I think there's a sorcerer version of it as well. The aberrant mind. Yes, I I like I like the way they did that. I just wish they had provided a little more actual psionic ability to those subclasses. Because I feel like with playing Kazina, who is a soul knife, sometimes I just it, it's she's just a rogue who can basically summon daggers with her mind. And, like, there's not enough of that, like, extra psionic flavor to her. I think what's funny with that is you and uh, Jeremiah both have classes that give you telepathic communication with people. So sometimes it it is funny trying to remember, like, who is actually speaking to everyone in their mind? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's the the one bit that Kazina gets that I do like is she can basically set up the telepathic communication between the party and i have to remember to say we're doing that before we're in the middle of something and i'd be like oh yeah i would have done this can we say i did this yeah there's been a there's been a few times that it's been kind of nice to be able to say we can talk this out and nobody else needs to hear it yeah (laughs) me personally i i like the concept of psionics but honestly my big thing is i don't want to completely reinvent the wheel and have all of these abilities that do the same thing as spells, but slightly different. So we have to take up space explaining how, you know, cryogenic blast right. is different than cone of cold. When I think of psionics, though, I do tend to think of like not needing a verbal component or a physical component, you know, things like that. I don't think they've grabbed that quite as often in their design. Um, I think they could probably do a little bit more of that, but I don't know that they really need to do like they I mean, they released a playtest of a Scion class, and they never really did anything with it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And I'm interested to see, because I, I have a book that has a, a third-party Scion in it. I just haven't had a chance to read through it yet, so I'm kind of interested to see how they do it. Um, and I know MCDM is also working on a third-party Scion class. For me, personally, if it gets too granular, I'm not going to be super thrilled with it. Right. I just want it to be simple enough that somebody that already grasps 5e doesn't have to learn a whole new subsystem that is a lot different than everything else. 
I do sometimes wish there was a little more ability to reflavor certain abilities or spells mm-hmm. to fit the concept of the character, like be able to take certain spells and just reflavor them slightly mm-hmm. as, you know, being psychic instead of it's just a magic fireball. Yeah. And like, this is, of course, something you can do with your group mm-hmm. at your own table, but I don't know how officially supported it is. Yeah. And I understand why, because you don't want you don't want situations where the new GM is trying to like figure things out and you have a player come at them hard wanting to do all of these things differently. Mm-hmm. So for example, my sorcerer Dove, she's kind of cold based. Mm-hmm. Actually, if uh if Frozen had been out when I made <laughs> Dove, uh I probably would have would have named her after that character. She would have been named Elsa instead of Isabella. <laughs> Either way, with working it out with the GM, we have basically themed a bunch of spells based around cold instead of fire. Her fireball is Mm cold-based, which is a lot of fun, but it's nothing that I could take to another GM without having a long conversation about why these changes were made to these spells. So I noticed you mentioned the Magus, which for anybody that doesn't know, that is a dedicated from first level, you are good at using swords and wearing armor and also casting arcane spells. Yes. I have heard people mention that while there are, there is the subclass of Bladesinger, which is basically you're a wizard that also learns a little bit of fighter and Eldritch Knight, which is you are a fighter that learns a little bit of wizard that none of that really scratches the same itch that they got from, like, the Sword Mage from 4th Edition. Mm-hmm. Here's my question to you about the Magus, because I get that, and I know that people have agreed, like, it is not... Both of those feel like you're dabbling in one thing and good at the other. They don't feel like you are integrating both of them. Right. But here's my question to you about that. How do you make subclasses for a Magus? Oh, I see. I I really like the Blade Singer. Mm-hmm. The only thing that the Blade Slinger is lacking is basically the hit points to be able to to stay up in a fight Mm -hmm. Uh, and i do think like this of course also requires that the choices you make about the spells your blade singer has suit the fact that you are a frontline fighter and not just i'm a wizard who can also use a sword you have to lean into the fact that you are designed to be a frontline fighter. Yeah. I had a ton of fun playing. <laughs> okay. S- sort of long story. Jinshana was a character I played in our original Eberron campaign back in about 2004. She was a Kalashtar who was a mix of psionicist and kineticist or basically like she was a little bit psychic warrior a little bit kineticist so basically like some big booms but also could hold her own with a with scimitar in combat and when we decided to revisit this campaign and rebuild them i i I don't think tasha's was not out yet so this the psy warrior was not an option so i'm like I don't know. I don't know. And like just looking at all of the options for the classes and we ended up settling on making her a blade singer, which Mm -hmm. was originally available in Sword Coast Adventures. And then I believe reprinted in Tasha's. 
Yeah. Um, and like that worked so much better. It's like no, her her spells were not really flavored as psionic mm-hmm. powers as much as they would have been, and she didn't really have the psychic abilities as a default that she should have had, other than the base what the Kalashtar comes with, and it just it worked. Mm-hmm. So with the Magus, I don't, I don't know if it's basically take a, an Eldritch Knight and give them a little more spells, or take a Blade Singer and give them a little more hit points. See, and that's what's weird to me is when I talk to people about the Fourth Edition class, a lot of that is that it fought, but magically, it wasn't even so much spells per se. It was like. I hit this thing, and as soon as I hit them, I teleport over here so that they can't retaliate. You know, yes. things like that, where they almost need, and, you know, this is something you could do with a class, but again, I'm I mean, hard-pressed to think of good subclasses, because it's not, I think it's easier to think of subclasses when it is kind of like a, a, an archetype from folklore. Like, we all can picture wizards in stories from folklore, so it's easier to pic- picture, oh, this is a fire, this is a wizard that uses fire, or this is a wizard that is a diviner. But it's harder when it's like, this is a, a a warrior that also has magical powers because that isn't so much folklore. That is more like recent fiction type stuff. But I do kind of get that idea of, I hit you, but I hit you supernaturally. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think there, there there are some limitations with the subclass idea. Mm-hmm. I have concerns about 1D&D, but I do like that they are aligning the subclasses across the classes on when they get their abilities. Cause I think that is one of the problems that fifth edition has is like some of the classes you get your subclass abilities at third and then you don't see anything else until like many levels later. You want to know what's interesting? Huh? They just released a video not long ago saying they still want to remake all of the classes to where you get your subclass at third but they may not be going with the idea that everyone gets their later abilities at the same level. I mean, I suppose that does help them basically say it's more backwards compatible. Yeah, because then it's easier to to say you get your first level abilities at third level instead. That that makes that compatibility thing a lot simpler. It does still hose the rogue because the rogue goes from third level to ninth level before they get their second yeah, subclass ability. They're just, there's, there's some weakness in the subclasses where sometimes they give you good flavor. And this is where there's the some subclasses are better than other subclasses mm-hmm. where the abilities you get add better flavor and mm-hmm. more fun to the class than later sub, other subclasses. Mm-hmm. So it's like... Eh, What's really weird is the more we talk about this, as much as I don't want them to have to reinvent the wheel, you know what class, you know, as we've been talking about this, would be the easiest to make subclasses for? That would be a psionicist. Yep. It's really easy to make subclasses for a psionicist because it's really easy to find different psychic disciplines that you could specialize in. Yeah. And basically you just base <laughs> everything off of intelligence. Mm-hmm. It's like you're a fighter, but you attack with intelligence rather than strength. Or decks, and actually, I may have something to say about that when we move out of here into downtime research. <laughs> well, on that note, um, <laughs> let's look at downtime research. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to the listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think 
will enhance your D&D experience. So I want to talk about Everyday Heroes. This is a, a book by Evil Genius Games, and it is a fifth edition reimagining of D20 Modern. No, it's not D&D, but it is 5e adjacent, and it was created by some of the folks responsible for D20 Modern. I am going to be playing a game at Origins using Everyday Heroes and also using the soon-to-be-released Highlander supplement. <laughs> I am pretty fascinated with how this game works. Instead of having classes, subclasses, all that, they have... The classes are based on the stats. So you are a strong hero. You're a agile hero. You're a sturdy hero. You're an intelligent hero. You're a wise hero. You're a charismatic hero. And then within each of those are the quote unquote subclasses, which take those ideas in different directions. And one of the things I really like, and I was concerned about this setting up a Highlander character because there can be only one, so you really need to be good at sword <laughs> fighting if you're still alive after a few hundred years, um, uh -huh. is that I was playing a wise hero, and I'm like, oh, she's not going to be good in a fight. Maybe just she's friends with all these other immortals just to stay alive. And no, as I got into it, I realized, because I'm playing a wise hero, my attack skill is based off of wisdom. My AC is based off of wisdom. So I am just as good as the strength-based characters. It's just I have other softer abilities and they have more feats and stuff geared towards being in combat. And I thought this was really interesting, a really interesting way. Now, you guys all know Jared and I are both firmly polygamous. Um, so I highly recommend trying different games. But if you're uncertain of what game to try and you're very comfortable with fifth edition, but still want to try a new genre, I highly recommend taking a look at Everyday Heroes. What's really funny is when you're talking about this being based off D20 Modern and, you know, they had that same thing where, like, you had a, you know, the fast hero was the dexterity-based one and the wise hero. The people that made the Expanse had at one time played that setting as a D20 future setting, and now I'm trying to picture, like, which characters from the Expanse were, you know, the, the strong hero or the wise hero, <laughs> charismatic hero. <laughs> So um, since we've been talking about additional core classes for D&D 5e, I wanted to point out a really interesting product. I looked at this a little while ago on my blog, but it is the Shadowcaster. And the Shadowcaster was originally created for the D&D 3rd Edition Tome of Magic. The 5e Shadowcaster is it's a product on the DMs Guild, and it was designed by the person that created the Shadowcaster for 3rd Edition, Ari Marmel. And it was developed by Dan Dillon, who is also a design, who, you know, is now a designer for Wizards of the Coast. And, you know, he was doing a lot of third party uh, design before he got hired by Wizards. So if you're interested in seeing how something translates from third edition to the current edition, um, I would recommend taking a look at the Shadowcaster on the Dungeon Masters Guild. We are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network, so we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying us, Consider checking out Misdirected Mark Plays. Phil, Chris, Bob, and Jerry play and discuss a campaign they've created and are playing. Now, instead of just hearing them talk about the theory of gaming and game mastering of the games they're playing, you can actually hear it's come full circle in their exploratory play series, MMP Plays. 
We have used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest, because I certainly need it before I get in the car to head to Origins. <laughs> I hope this adventure was rewarding for you. We hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure. <laughs>